Genesis chapter 38. If you'll remember in context here, Joseph had been sold as a slave by his brothers and brought to Egypt. Joseph being one of the 12 sons of Jacob, also known as Israel. But when his brothers meet Joseph years later, they have changed. We'll find that, that they are not acting the same way as they had done you know, more than 20 years earlier. How did this change happen? What happened in the meantime? Uh, we learn something about this in the case of Judah in this chapter. And Judah's story is especially important since we learn at the end of Genesis that the Christ would come from his line. Genesis 37 through 50, this final section of the book of Genesis, is not just the life of Joseph. Sometimes it's thought of that way because he is a very prominent figure in the narrative, but it is the life of Jacob's sons. It is the generations of Jacob, how God and saved and shepherded them and set them up as the 12 patriarchs of Israel and promised a savior through them. And so it makes sense here that after hearing of what happened to Joseph, that we also have this account of a very uh, complicated, messy story, nonetheless, but one of what happened to Judah and how God worked in his life. So, uh, you can follow along with me if you want in your Bibles or in the sermon insert, Genesis chapter 38. Uh, We'll read the full chapter. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went in to her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Ennaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage." When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. 
for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at En-Naim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has become immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. So, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Sarah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us uh, pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for your uh, kindness to us in revealing your will to us for our salvation uh, through your prophets of old. And in these last days, by your Son himself, we pray that you would make the reading of your word and its preaching uh, to us uh, a thing that is edifying for us, to convict us, to build us up in comfort and holiness, that you would cause the truth to be proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In looking at this narrative, I want to kind of more briefly go through what it says, uh, the, the account, the narrative, the story, and, and then draw some lessons from it. And there are seven, which is a lot more points than I usually have, uh, but uh, we'll go through them uh, probably a little quicker. First of all, though, what, what happens? In the first 11 verses, we find that Judah and his sons go astray. There is a problem, a threat. Uh, will they be assimilated? Will they be uh, destroyed? Will they <laughs> die out? A similar threat that we saw with uh, Shechem. Remember where there was the threat of assimilation, and then after things happened, the threat of annihilation? Well, similarly here with Judah and his line, will they be assimilated into the Canaanites? Uh, or will they all die out because they keep offending God and being struck dead? 
and don't want to have more children. Uh, Judah moves away from his brothers and lives among the Canaanites. There's both a departure from his family, perhaps, perhaps there was some guilt about what had just happened with Joseph. Uh, We don't know if that was part of it or not, but he moved away from, and he also went to, made friends with this Canaanite who lived in Adullam, and uh, he also married the daughter of a Canaanite, which is something that Abraham had wanted his son to avoid. The uh, patriarchs had sought to find spouses that were not from among the Canaanites, but now he, without any mention of his father's consent or involvement, goes and takes a Canaanite. It turns out when he gets a wife for his son, he actually does a better job than his own choice of a wife, although that was surprising. He marries the daughter of a Canaanite. So the question is, will he be assimilated into the Canaanites? At first, it seems like he will. Uh, His sons, as they grow up, seem to act more like Canaanites than Israelites. Ur, his firstborn, was wicked. And after he married Tamar, uh, God struck him down, uh, put him to death. We don't know what it was that he was doing that was wicked. How did his wickedness express itself? But we do know that he was wicked and God killed him. Uh, uh, Incidentally, Ur is, if you spell it backwards, it's the word for wicked. Uh, There's a little irony in there um, that it's not why they named him Ur, but it turns out that he was wicked, despite being the firstborn of Judah. But then his brother uh, was there. His name was Onan. In accordance with the the custom of leveret marriage, which we find even later in Deuteronomy 25 uh, spelled out in in that law, uh, Judah directed his son Onan to take his brother's wife to raise up offspring, an heir for Ur, that his name would be perpetuated and inheritance. Um, And so Onan did take his brother's wife, Tamar, as his father directed, but then he refused to give her offspring. Uh, He uh, exercised a a basic form of birth control and did not, it prevented conception from happening, uh, despite taking her, and the whole point of taking her was to do this very thing, to raise up offspring for his brother. And he did not want to give offspring to his brother because he knew that this child would not be his, but his brother's and uh, did not do so, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so God killed him. God put him to death. Then uh, Judah, seeing this, uh, perhaps does not perceive the right cause that these sons were being put to death because they were wicked, um, and instead withholds his last son from doing the very thing that's Onan was supposed to do, and withholds him as if Tamar was the problem, and doesn't want to give the youngest son to Tamar, and uses an excuse, the youth of this youngest son, oh, wait uh, in your father's house, you know, please go away from here, go, go to your father's house, remain as a widow, and when he grows up, you know, I'll give you to him as a wife. But really, he just feared that Sheila would die, and he did not have intention of um, giving her to Sheila, and he sinned by promising but withholding his third son. Now, in verses 12 to 23, we find that uh, some degree of time has passed. Judah's wife uh, died, and 
Judah was traveling through Tamar's town. This is one indication, by the way, that Tamar was probably a Canaanite herself, that she was at least an inhabitant of the land, that her father's house was in this Canaanite city. And Judah was traveling through, and Tamar decided to take action. She saw that Sheila had grown up, that there was no intention to give her to him, that she was stuck now in this position. She couldn't marry other people. She couldn't marry him. How would, uh, there, would be, how would there be offspring? Would the line of Judah be cut out? How would she obtain offspring for Ur? If Sheila was not to be hers, then what about the next of kin? What about the man who was committing this injustice? He was passing through. And so she hid her identity by changing out of her widow's clothes, which would have identified her, and by veiling herself so that Judah would not recognize her. Judah thought that she was a prostitute um, at, because of her location at uh, the roadside, um, at the city's entrance, probably just outside the city. Uh, I don't think the veil indicated that she was a prostitute because Rebecca wore a veil when she met Isaac. Rather, the veil kept him from recognizing her as Tamar, and therefore he concluded that uh, because of her place that she was a prostitute. And so he approaches her as such, and he agrees to pay her a young goat. It's funny how goats keep showing up in these stories with uh, deception and, and the like, but it was just ordinary because that's his wealth. He, he had goats. He had sheep. And so he says, I will pay you a goat, but I don't have it with me. And so she requests a pledge that he would pay the goat. And so he gives her, by her request, his signet, his cord, and his staff. Uh, The signet was probably a a seal. Um, The cord is probably what it was hung on. And the staff um, was probably a a very particular staff with an emblem on the top. They were like his his ID, his, uh, his credit cards, and his license uh, driver's license, and probably even more important than that, um, there were his, his symbols of his identity. And so he gives them to her until he sends the, her the young goat, and then he's going to get those things back. That's what he thinks. Well, Ju- Tamar's plan worked. Judah went into her, she conceived a child by him, and then she went back home and changed back into her widow's garments. Judah then sent his friend to pay her the goat, but then he could not find her. Well, because she, she was no longer dressed in the same way. They would have just known that, oh, that's Tamar. Of course she lives there. Um, and so she kept the pledges. Well, verses 24 through 30 then, the, the account comes to its climax. Three months later, Judah receives the news that his daughter-in-law had been immoral, had, as it literally, played the harlot and was pregnant by it. Uh, this was a great scandal and was considered not only fornication, but also adultery because she was uh, pledged, she was betrothed. And she had not said who the father of the child was, presumably, um, probably so she could appeal directly to Judah himself with the evidence after seeing his response. And only he would know the truth. And so Judah passes judgment, death by burning. Now, adultery deserved death. We'll find that in the law. But Judah should have at least investigated a little more closely and at least waited until the child, which in fact was his children, were born. And later, biblical law would only prescribe burning if the daughter of a priest profaned herself by whoring. And so it seems perhaps excessive in this case. Judah judges her hastily 
and harshly, despite his own sins, and despite putting her in limbo. Perhaps he was all too eager to get her out of the way. But at the last minute, as she was being brought out to be burned, she sent the signet cord and staff to Judah and said, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Can you identify them? Well, of course he could identify them. They're his. But she uh, sends them to him and has himself be the one to convict himself. She waited until he had passed sentence. She waited until he had convicted himself by his sentence so that his own judgment would serve to convict him. Judah then identified them and gave judgment in her favor, releasing her from death. He said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Uh, The duty had been fulfilled. The intent of the law had been accomplished. And it turns out Tamar was not just pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. Uh, Judah had lost two sons, and now he gains two sons. Zerah put his hand out first and got the scarlet cord. He had crossed the finish line. He was the firstborn, but then the hand came back, and the other child came out, bursting forth. Um, And so he was called Perez, which kind of means bursting forth, or he who breaks through, a breach. And this prefigured the rise of Perez's clan's rise to prominence. Uh, That's even though he was, I guess, technically the younger of the twins. I mean, that's about as close as it gets. But he would, by the time of Moses, who was writing Genesis, it was a descendant of Perez, uh, Nashon, who was the prince of the tribe of Judah. And from Nashon would come Boaz, and from him would come Jesse eventually, and uh, David, and then eventually Jesus. So this turns out to be a very important story to tell. Um, part of the redemptive history of God's people. So what are we to make of this very uh, unique story and account? Well, first of all, beware the waywardness of Judah. Uh, Beware the waywardness of Judah. You will live in this world, part of a society and a community which has many ungodly influences. Uh, That's actually good in part because you have the opportunity to influence your community for good, but it also has temptations and, and the threat of assimilation. You must be wise and careful. So learn from Judah. And as in a negative example at the beginning of this story, do not forsake the fellowship of the church. Do not leave your brothers, your brothers in Christ, and beware the influence of bad company. The worship of the church and the mutual edification of the saints on a regular basis are important for your sanctification and for your perseverance in the way. They prevent the deceitfulness of sin from hardening your heart. Sin wants to progress. It wants to go to the next step. And uh, the author of Hebrews would remind us to exhort one another that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so the the fellowship of the church, the ordinances of God are important. And Judah uh, forsook these things and instead embraced bad company with the Canaanites. And see the progression of Judah. He covered up his sin against Joseph. He moved away from his brothers to live with a Canaanite friend. And he married a Canaanite. And then he and his children begin to live like Canaanites. And they all start to suffer the, the, the destiny of the Canaanites. They would be struck down in the days of Joshua for their wickedness. 
So do not go down that path, but rather repent of your sins and maintain fellowship with the saints. Participate in the worship of God and watch out for bad influences. Do not marry those who are not committed Christians. Resist assimilation to the secular ungodliness that is promoted in our culture. And stand together with your households as a people set apart by the covenant of your God. So beware the waywardness of Judah. Beware also the evil of his sons. Judah's first son was wicked. We don't know how, but it was nonetheless a warning. The eldest son of Judah was wicked and struck down. So let all the children of the covenant take heed. You have been given a knowledge of the gospel, a sign of baptism, even as we just saw, right, a few minutes ago. And you ought to make use of these things and embrace the God of your fathers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to follow him and to not go astray like Ur. Now, Judah's second son, Onan, received Tamar in accord with the custom of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage means this, this custom of if the brother dies without an heir, that's kind of key. If he has heirs, it doesn't happen. But if he dies without heirs, that his brother, especially if they dwell together, Deuteronomy says, that the brother takes uh, his wife to raise up offspring for his brother. So he receives Tamar, but then he refused to fulfill his duty to his brother and his wife uh, to give his brother offspring. And he, that I think is fundamentally what was wrong, but combined with that, you know, sin is always worse when it's multiple sins, right? When it's aggravated by several things. He refused to give his brother offspring after taking Tamar, and he willfully rejected the fruitfulness of marriage altogether. It wasn't a, a one-time thing. Whenever uh, he knew uh, Tamar sexually, he prevented uh, children from resulting, and therefore was not fruitful and multiply like like God had said at the beginning. He also despised the covenant promises. What were the promises of Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to his offspring like Judah? That he would multiply them, that he would give them offspring, that he would be a God to them and their offspring, make them abundant. But Onan uh, rejected this and did not. uh, He despised the covenant and its blessings and promises. Well, leverant marriage is not practice today, at least very much to my knowledge. Uh, We don't find it here in our culture. Uh, But in application, you can still learn to avoid Onan's wickedness in several ways. Uh, First of all, don't be selfish. Onan was selfish, and that has applicability to a lot of different things. He didn't want to do good to his brother because it would involve work for him that he would not personally enjoy the benefits of. Don't be selfish like Onan. Secondly, Fulfill your duties to others, whatever kind of duty they are, especially to your brothers, especially to those who are close to you. Uh, Thirdly, do not willfully reject the gift of children, but embrace children as a blessing of God, as one divinely appointed end of marriage, as a means by which to build up his church. Onan was wrong to use birth control to avoid raising up offspring for his brother. How much more unnatural is it for a person to refuse to raise up offspring for himself and his wife? I don't know if it's worse, but it's more unnatural. More modern developments in technology and philosophy and culture encourage people to think a different way. 
but the Bible teaches that offspring are an end of marriage. They're not simply an optional accessory that has nothing to do with marriage, which is the way it's treated today. It could go with marriage. It could go without marriage. Marriage could go without it. It's, you know, like, do you want to add a garage to your house or not? It's a, as, a, as a personal uh, whim or a lifestyle choice rather than an end of marriage. Not the only one, but certainly a divinely appointed one. The fruit of the womb is, is parallel to the fruit of the field, uh, it's something that you would desire. The farmer certainly is still a farmer in a famine. But he, what does he seek? He seeks produce. And generally speaking, the more the better. He rejoices in the fruit of the field. How much more valuable are eternal souls than crops? God told his people in Jeremiah 29 to get married that they might bear children so that they would multiply and not decrease. Now, this is not to say that every individual instance of preventing conception is necessarily wrong. That's a more complicated discussion. But a great deal of the present use of birth control is contrary to God's word and his design for marriage. And certainly practices that then kill the unborn children are worse. Fourthly, another way to be unlike Onan is to prize the promises of God, to believe in the promised Savior, to do your part in building up his church. It grows both through families and through the evangelism of outsiders. Onan did not care about building up the people of God, but we ought to. We ought to not be like Onan. Third thing that we can learn from this passage, not only avoiding, bewaring the uh, sins of Judah and his sons, but also to behold, to behold the justice of God for Tamar. He blessed her risky plan, he gave her conception, and he gave justice, therefore, to Tamar. Through his providence, he heard her cause and affliction and overcame Judah and blessed her with children. She had been childless, not through any fault of her own, but because of her husband's and their wickedness. She had been twice widowed, she was childless, she was left in limbo, she was bound to the family of Judah, but then sent back home, the victim of Judah's deceptive injustice." But God raised her up by making her the mother of twins, the mother of the kings of Israel, the ancestor of Christ himself. As God had compassion on Leah and her affliction and blessed her and raised her up, so he had compassion on uh, Tamar and her affliction and blessed her. He upheld the widow. He executed justice for the oppressed. As Psalm 113 says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So today, God is not callous and aloof. He is still a compassionate and a just God. It's a call upon him in your distress. Have others mistreated you? Uh, Trust in the Lord and seek his help. Do not mistreat others, lest he take up another's cause against you. Do justice and trust the Lord, even if it means you suffer for a time for righteousness' sake. Call upon him to hear your just cause when you are mistreated by others. Fourth thing to learn, behold the faithfulness of God in providing offspring for Judah. Despite the sins of Judah and his sons, God provided offspring for Judah in a very unlikely way through a Canaanite woman. Uh, 
He saved Judah's line from extinction and also replaced Judah's dead sons, so that he ended up with three sons who themselves had children. In this way, God showed his faithfulness to his promise to multiply the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and passed on this promise to Judah. Not only would these children increase the people of Israel, but one of them would be the ancestor of the promised offspring who would crush the serpent's head. God had promised a Savior to save his people back in Genesis 3. The Savior would come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through this Savior, all the nations would be blessed. And throughout the history of ancient Israel, God was working to this end. Through Perez would come David, and then Jesus, the King of God's people, the Savior of the world, God come in the flesh. In this story, Judah had lost his seal and his staff, but then he regained it. In Genesis 49, the end of the book, Jacob, his father, told Judah that he would rule over his brothers and that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That staff would remain with Judah. It would become a scepter and his descendant, King Jesus, would receive the obedience of the peoples and would be that promised savior. So behold the faithfulness and the grace of God in working this, giving offspring to Judah. Fifthly, behold the grace of God in bringing Judah to humility and repentance. God worked through Judah. Judah was going the wrong way, but in this way Judah learned humility and repentance. He was caught like David by his own condemning words. This was part of his training by God. Judah was going in a bad direction, a way that led to destruction. But for the grace of God, he would have ended up like another Esau. Esau chased off his brother with violence and had despised the covenant and had married Canaanites. But but for the grace of God, Judah would have ended up like another Esau. But for the grace of God, you would have ended up like another Esau. But God worked by his providence to humble Judah, to bring him to a conviction of his unrighteousness, that he would confess his sin and repent. And the fruit of this repentance would become more evident as time went on. We'll find him a changed man and a changing man later in Genesis. So give thanks to God for his grace. He works in lives to save sinners from what would be the end of your innate depravity, that it is of his grace that he brings us to repentance and is good uh, that he humble us. Well, sixthly, so, you know, beware, also behold. You could say that these are three points. Beware things, behold things, God's work. Uh, Lastly, learn from things. So, fifth and sixth point, or sorry, sixth and seventh point. The sixth one, though, is it could be uh, questionable as, as you look at the point in your sermon outline. Learn from Tamar? What, what should we learn from Tamar? Should we learn from the faithfulness of Tamar? Was what Tamar did right? Her actions are a bit debatable, due in part to the obscurity of the underlying practice of leveret marriage. At the very least, she did better than Judah and her sons, despite being an inhabitant of the land, a Canaanite, uh, rather than the son of Jacob. What looked like unfaithfulness on her part, in fact, was faithfulness to this family. 
Judah's verdict in the interpretive Judah's verdict is the interpretive key in the chapter. What did he say? She is more righteous than I. Now, the same phrase is used by King Saul when uh, he was chasing David, and David pled his case before Saul, and Saul said, you are more righteous than I, and admitted the righteousness of his cause. The verdict Judah gave was against himself and for Tamar. At the very least, she had been more righteous than Judah. Between the two of them, she was in the right. Certainly, her intention and goal was right, while Judah's had been unjust and selfish. Even her actions were at least more righteous than Judah's. Perhaps were they simply righteous? For her to be more righteous than Judah, it seems to me that her action must have essentially fulfilled the Leveret practice. Apart from that legal arrangement, her actions would have been quite wicked. Adultery, incest, tricking Judah into participating in these things. Um, But within that arrangement of Leveret marriage, it was different. Normally, it was incest for a woman and her father-in-law to have sex. It was, in fact, the death penalty was prescribed for that in Leviticus. Uh, But it was also normally unlawful for a woman to have sex with her husband's brother. Uh, The Leveret marriage was already an exception to the rule. And as the example of Ruth shows, the principle of Leveret marriage could extend to other relatives besides the brothers. Tamar and Judah both knew that there was no intention to give her to Shelah. And so she obtained the offspring from the next of kin, still within the family. If Tamar did wrong, it was in doing this without a publicly recognized wedding. Uh, But Judah saw that it was his own actions that had kept her from doing this in the proper way. The Leveret marriage custom did bind her to Judah's family to produce an heir for her late husband. And so there was a type of legal obligation in force. What Tamar did was highly irregular. It was due to a very unique situation. So her actions are not being presented as a blueprint for others to follow. Uh, That is not the way uh, to imitate her. Given her particular circumstances, her actions do do seem to be in basic accord with the intent of the Leveret marriage law. It's debatable whether she was blameless in what she did, but the narrative does present her actions generally in a positive light. But it's not her actions so much that you should imitate, uh, but her faithfulness and her courage. Tamar was the opposite of Onan. Onan was selfish, but she was faithful to the family to produce offspring. She put herself in grave danger to risk her life to raise up offspring for her late husband and his family for the people of Israel. She risked her reputation and her life. Perhaps what motivated her was faith in God's promises. We don't know how much she knew about the covenant, but that would have certainly helped move her to make such a choice. She was able to obtain her just cause And by God's blessing, she produced offspring for Judah, even the offspring from which the Christ would come. Notice that in Matthew's genealogy, the three named women before Mary were all outsiders who took the initiative to show loyalty to Israel at risk to themselves, uh, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And both Tamar and Ruth took initiative in different ways to raise up offspring for the dead. This line would go on. David also had a daughter named Tamar, perhaps an indication of his gratitude for one of his ancestors. So I think we can learn from the faithfulness of Tamar, even though there may be some debate on 
uh, all of her actions. Learn also, lastly, from the repentance of Judah. Do not wait as long as Judah before you repent of your sins. Do not stiffen your neck. Do not harden your heart, but confess your sins and turn from them. Examine yourself and pray that God would reveal to you your sins. You might not want to know all of your sins. You know, it's rather, sometimes ignorance is bliss, but it's actually good for you to know them, that you might turn from them, that you might grow in righteousness, that you might not hurt others, uh, that you might do what is good. Do not deceive yourself, but rather humble yourself before the Lord, lest he need to humble you. Confess your sins before God, before others if appropriate, and turn from your sins unto God. So in conclusion, God worked once again from a difficult, through a difficult situation caused by man's sin. He shepherded his people away from destruction. He kept them from assimilation and from annihilation. He preserved the promised line. God did so in an unexpected way, in this case through a foreign woman. While the Lord cut off the wicked, he executed justice for the oppressed, demonstrated faithfulness to his covenant, he showed grace to a sinner, bringing him back to the right way through repentance. This is the God you and I serve. This is the God whom we know and love. He has demonstrated his grace and truth through the incarnation of his Son, and his work of salvation for sinners. So entrust yourself to him, that you might be saved. He shall save his people. To him be the glory and thanks. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we give thanks to you and to your faithfulness from generation to generation, saving sinners who deserved your judgment and wrath, and that you have shown us this same mercy that we, like all mankind, were born in sin and iniquity, and yet you have given us the good news of Jesus Christ that we might be saved. We pray that you would strengthen us in these ways, that when we go astray, that you would bring us back early and soon, that we would become aware and convicted of our sin and so turn from them and to trust in the sacrifice of Christ. We pray that you would be with the children, to raise them up, to embrace your ways, to not be like Ur and Onan, but rather to walk in your ways in true faith and to walk in your ways by this faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.